Black Canary. I'll need a sparring partner. I'm Zatanna. Why do you care about some leggy dame in nylons? Or have I answered my own question? Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for magic. Welcome to a special, sort of milestone episode of Power of Fishnets, the Black Canary and Zatanna podcast. I'm Ryan Daly, and if you've been following the chronological publication history of Zatanna, like this podcast has been doing, you know there are only four more comics in which the Mistress of Magic appeared in her classic tuxedo and fishnets outfit before her first major costume change. Four comics, one backup strip, one team up with Supergirl, one team up with Green Arrow, and one random Justice League issue in which she sort of cameos in the background. And I'm tackling all four of them on this episode. It's going to start with her final solo backup story from this era, but this one wasn't published in Supergirl or Adventure Comics. No, the first story on deck appeared in Superman's Girlfriend Lois Lane issue 132, cover dated July 1973, on sale April 12th that year about two and a half months after Zatanna's previous appearance in Supergirl number 4. Credits are not included in this story, so big thanks to Mike's Amazing World for letting us know that the script for the story called The Boy Who Never Smiled is written by Carrie Bates and the pencils are by Art Saff, with inks by Vince Coletta. The four-page story opens with the saucy sorceress performing magic tricks for sick kids in the children's ward of a hospital. The trick that has the kids almost falling out of their beds in astonishment is splitting herself in half. Doctors Moores and Dirk ask Zatanna to perform her act for one of their most unfortunate cases, a nine-year-old boy named Maddie who has recently lost all use of his arms. Maddie is highly intelligent, but this bizarre infirmity has turned him bitter and sullen. He seems incapable of finding joy in anything. He won't even crack a smile. Some boy after my own heart. Zatanna means to change that and launches into her magic show by removing her hat and all of her hair, revealing a totally bald scalp. With the spell, Plaques to Orps a Irt, her scalp sprouts a tree. It seems utterly amazing, but Maddie is not impressed. He read about a super fast growing botanical extract that he suspects Zatanna placed on her head. In other words, he's thought of a scientific explanation for her magic. Somebody called Dr. Thirteen. You've got a sidekick here. Next, Zatanna casts a spell that makes Maddie's bed float over a school of porpoises. Maddie, not amused, assumes she pumped his room with hallucinogenic gas. She tries one more trick, turning Maddie into a clown and holding up a mirror for him to see his altered state. Maddie figures she's holding a trick mirror. No smiles from him. The saucy sorceress has failed to cure the boy who never smiles. In frustration, she sits in a chair beside the bed, and the legs of the chair snap! The chair collapses, and Zatanna falls, landing on her butt. Maddie cracks up, laughing heartily. He admits to having a nurse sabotage the chair, believing the only trick that could make him laugh was his own. And it worked so well that as he laughs, Maddie begins to clap his hands. That means he can move his arms. He's cured. 
Zatanna guesses that his arm paralysis was psychosomatic. All it took to cure him was her embarrassing pratfall. So in this case, laughter was the best medicine. The end. Okay, this is a cute, fairly harmless story. I don't know what kind of stories Lois Lane typically featured, so I, I mean, I wasn't expecting Zatanna to do battle with evil magicians or vampires. This one was fine, you know. We see more fun examples of her powers. Carrie Bates was always really good with that. We see her earnest, caring nature, which is always a plus. I said last episode that I like magicians performing for kids. Doing it at a children's hospital is all the better. And Art Saf's art is really good, a little more striking than Don Heck's, which might not be saying much for a lot of you. Uh, something to note in this story, we get a lot of shots of Zatanna without her top hat. Her hair looks great, and maybe it's just me, but it, it has a de-aging effect. I think she looks younger in the panels without the hat. I don't know, maybe it's me. Anyway, that was Zatanna's final backup solo feature from this era. Now I'm going to take a promotional break, but on the other side of the commercial, Dr. Ange is going to join me to talk about Zatanna's team-up with the Girl of Steel in Supergirl number 7. Don't go away. In 2011, the irredeemable Shag and Aqua Rob Kelly teamed up to create the Fire and Water podcast. In 2016, they teamed up with Ryan Daly, The Franklins, and Siskoid to form the Fire & Water Podcast Network. A network built on teaming up needs a show about team-ups. Marvel Team-Up. Yes. The Brave and the Bold. You know it. Marvel 2-in-1. It's clobbering time. DC Comics presents. Of course. Supervillain Team-Up. Good idea. Youngblood X-Force. Mmm, technically. FW Team Up, coming this summer, only from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. time when I say we, I'm not referring to myself in the plural form. I mean we because I've got an actual guest. Fresh off his Grand Slam debut on Holla for Hot Pants, please welcome the Supergirl fan, Dr. Ange, to the show. What's up, Ange? Uh, not much. Happy New Year, Ryan. Thanks yep. for inviting me. Always happy to talk about uh, Supergirl in this time period. Absolutely. Same to you. Uh, happy New Year. Great to talk about these things. Uh, as a, you are the Supergirl fan, and unlike Supergirl issues one through four, where Zatanna only appears in backup stories, in issue seven, they actually team up. So I knew that we had to team up for this review. And also because you gave me my paper copy of this issue at Boston Comic-Con a couple of years ago. Um, I had previously read it on Comixology, but it is great to have a paper copy of this particular story because it is such a fun read. 
Yeah, uh, it has the standard ridiculous stuff that happens in these Supergirl and Bronze Age stories, um, and it's really beautifully drawn, so I couldn't help but give it to you. Well, thank you very much for that. And it kind of brings up the, the question that I did want to get to. Your your Supergirl street cred is well known. You've talked about it on this other podcasts on the Fire and Water Network. I'm not going to ask you to repeat how you became a fan, but I did kind of want to address this particular Supergirl series. It only ran for 10 issues what is its kind of overall place in, I mean, in in your particular fandom, for one thing, but also in the character's publication life? Uh, how was it different than what came before and what came after? What was better about the series? What was worse? And you can take that and run with it. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's great. So, you know... Um if you look at um, Supergirl around this time period or her history, it seems like about every four or five years, um, it was felt that they kind of needed to reboot her um, to sort of see if they could get a different um, sort of audience interested in her. And oftentimes what ended up happening was whatever the writer was or whoever the writer was and what they were interested in, the book would sort of get rebooted into something like that. So she um, had been the backup feature in Action Comics and had been, you know, the orphan in the orphanage and then had gone on to get adopted and was in college and then had a long run in adventure comics that had just preceded this run where she graduated college became um, a sort of camera woman slash reporter in a mobile news team and then that book ended and this book started and all of a sudden it was sort of a soft reboot she went back to school she went to a drama college Van Dyer University where where she you know said that this was her lifelong goal was to be an actress nobody had ever heard that before <laughs> um, and this ran really 10 issues and as i sort of said in the uh, in the prior reviews i had done on the show each book seems to be um, uh, one and done with no real long-standing threads, um, with a lot of, I would say, unused potential. She's in a drama school. She has new supporting cast members that never get any backstories of their own. Every story seems to be about her wanting to find a man to date uh, and being jilted by that person. And every issue seems to end with her either sad or angry because why can't she get a boyfriend uh, and be Supergirl? So it's kind of an odd uh, 10-issue run that then um, Lois Lane, Jimmy Olsen, and this book get smushed into the Superman family moving forward. And the Superman family run is, again, a bunch of either reprints and then ultimately she becomes a guidance counselor and then a soap opera actress. And, you know, that sort of churn of continuity (laughs) happens as new writers come on board. What do you think, I mean, from your personal view, what do you think are the standout aspects or elements of the series? Like, what are your favorite parts about this particular series? I would say easy answer is the artwork here. Art mm-hmm. Saf, who does the artwork, really brings um, a very beautiful, youthful um, sort of approach to Supergirl. Um, she's gorgeous. Um, uh, and so I think that uh, that is really the main draw of these stories. There's also, if you look at these, you know, it was a socially relevant time period. And I think maybe they were trying to sort of uh, inject that here. So. You know, one of the issues I reviewed before, they talked about sickle cell anemia and, you know, her supporting cast is a very diverse cast for the time period with an African-American, an Asian-American and an Israeli, mm-hmm. all, uh, you know, uh, 
dorm mates with her. And even this issue, when we get into it, has sort of a little riff on either Vietnam or, as they say, you know, um, our East Asian enemy, uh, which I assume, you know, they couldn't say Vietnam particularly. <laughs> so there is that, as you read, there is a little bit of that aspect there. You know, there's another uh, issue that um, we won't be talking about uh, on this one because there's a pandas in it, but where uh, she gets involved in a, a gang war and talking about gangs. So maybe they tried to inject a little bit of that uh, in as well. <laughs> well, you'll have to review that one on your own uh, Hala for Hot Pants podcast <laughs> soon, to, soon to come from the show, from the network. Um, I, I completely agree about Art Saf's uh, work. I was really unfamiliar with it for the most part. I've, I've seen a few occasional glimpses, but just kind of reading through these issues, I really dig it. He actually did... Uh, there's a ton of backup that I just covered on the previous segment of this episode um, from that Lois Lane story. There was a ton of backup that was written by Carrie Bates with art by Art Saf. Um, and I, I like his version of Zatanna much, much more youthful. And um, yeah, she just, it, it's really good, really good. So, okay. Let's get into this issue that we're that we're here to cover. So the comic, ladies and gents, is Supergirl issue seven. It is cover dated October nineteen seventy three, but originally on sale July thirty first that year, according to Mike's Amazing World. The cover price a whopping twenty cents. The cover artist was Bob Oxner, and it features Supergirl and Zatanna fighting over what looks like a yeti or abominable snowman creature. The ladies each have their hands on one of the monster's wrists, and they're pulling him in opposite directions. Supergirl says, let him go, Zatanna. He belongs to me. He's mine. To which Zatanna replies, not on your life. A caption at the bottom proclaims, for the first time, Supergirl and Zatanna meet not to join forces, but to battle each other for the sinister snowman. What do you think of this cover? This is one of those classic ones where this scene sort of takes place in the story, but not 100%. But, you know, as beautiful as Art Sapp uh, drew women, uh, Bob Oxner uh, drew them just as beautiful. And, and this is really, I think, um, a great cover to showcase these two characters. It's kind of fun, them sort of like, why would they be interested in this snowman in what seems to be a romantic way? Um, uh, yeah. So I actually like it a lot. Yeah, I do. It's It's kind of silly. It's... It, it does give you a sense of, is this story just going to be about the two girls being boy crazy and fighting over a guy, which, yeah, it, and we'll, we'll see that. Um, is it going to look like that? Eh, we'll, we'll see. We'll get into that. Um, so uh, why don't you lead us off? Would you care to begin our synopsis? All right. So this story is titled The Sinister Snowman, and it was written by Robert Kaniger. And some of the uh, sort of uh, gender politics that we see here are very similar to Kaniger's uh, stories in Wonder Woman. Uh, mm -hmm. We'll let Frank chime in um, <laughs> with that art by Art Sapp and Vince Coletta. The opening splash is split into two large vertical panels showing our two heroes, Supergirl on a snowy mountain being dragged by her feet by two prehistoric-looking men, and Zatanna appearing unconscious in the claws of a giant eagle made out of ice, a creature that would make Zan green with envy. The story opens on the Van Dyer campus where a rally is happening to remember the POWs of the war in Vietnam. Uh, I mean, the war against our enemy in Southeast Asia. The students are handing bracelets out with the names of POWs for the students to wear to remember. But Linda Danvers won't wear one because she's already wearing a named bracelet. The name is Tony Morton, a civilian missing in the Himalayas on a mission for the Peace Corps. 
Linda flashes back, remembering when she saved Tony as Supergirl of the past. His convertible was being covered by a stray parachute that landed on top of him, making him swerve all over the road. And Supergirl, flying by, carried his car to safety. She was floored when she saw that Tony had brilliant blue eyes and a sort of Burt Reynolds-looking dreamboat aspect. She really captured her fancy. And he seemed to like her, too, mailing her at Van Dyer regularly before getting lost on this mission. Really, those classic dangerous roads that we saw back in the Bronze Age. But Supergirl's not the only one crushing on Tony Martin, as we'll see. Elsewhere, Zatanna the Magician performs her celebrated magic act for a crowd. She selects a volunteer from the crowd and tells him to keep his heart beating and his brain thinking. Very good direction, Zatanna basically told the kid not to die on stage with her. She casts a spell, Epor Emak Evila, and a piece of rope comes alive, forming the same pattern as the volunteer boy's brainwaves. She also casts the spell, Skipmerd Tratsknitabe, and a pair of drumsticks start beating a drum to the exact rhythm of the boy's heartbeat. The crowd goes wild, but Zatanna is sad. Her thoughts turn to a memory she has of performing the same trick one year ago. At that performance, her volunteer was none other than the devilishly handsome Tony Martin. Zatanna was so powerfully attracted to him at once that when she cast the spell on the rope, it spelled the words, You're terrific, betraying her feelings for the man. After the show, Zatanna started dating Tony, but their enchanted romance ended when he shipped out with the Peace Corps. As the Maid of Magic concludes her performance, she recalls a rumor that Tony is lost in the Himalayas and thinks maybe she should go after him. And, much like Satana, Supergirl can't take her mind off Tony and decides that she also needs to find him. So she excuses herself from her classes and flies to the Himalayas. As we know, at the same time, fiery-willed Zatanna is also heading there. On a Himalayan mountain, Supergirl runs into an Eskimo-like, primitive people and saves their hutted village from a giant boulder rolling down the mountain towards their homes. In a nice action sequence, Supergirl drills into the center of the boulder to get a better handle of the weight and carries it off. She then asks the people about Tony. The Grateful Tribe actually know him. He helped them in their village. But then Tony defied the will of Orgox, the demon on the mountain, who the tribe had been offering sacrifices to. Tony believed that Orgox a sort of devilish-looking, Buddha-looking thing, was a mortal tricking the tribe out of their resources. And so Tony went out into the snow to prove it. He never returned. Armed with this info, Kara decides to fly off to find her love. Meanwhile, Zatanna arrives and casts the spell, Sinat Tub Da El Amat Stun Urptuf. A magic boot appears and leads the saucy sorceress up the mountain. Eventually, the boot can't go any farther, and so Zatanna says, Wands laugh, yawa morph the new org. Magically, Tony's footprints appear, and Zatanna is back on the trail. Meanwhile, Supergirl's search leads her to discover two cavemen frozen in ice. When she passes by them, they break free and attack her. Somehow, these Cromanians are exceedingly heavy or dense and are able to grab onto Supergirl's ankles and pull her through the ground into an underground cavern. Their Supergirl uses water from a nearby underground lake to douse them and then refreeze them all over again. But Kara thinks they must have been magically empowered to be that heavy and to have that control over her. Perhaps Orgox truly is a demon. And Zatanna isn't really faring any better. It's hard to climb up a mountain in fishnets and pumps, I have to tell you, Ryan. 
She says, score em ak eb gunit a ulf spets, creating a staircase. And that just then, a monstrous eagle of ice flies by and grabs her. Near frozen in its talons, Atana's teeth are chattering too much for her to cast a spell. Taken to the eagle's igloo airy, she is able to bathe her face in sun rays. Rewarmed, she casts the spell. Wands drib em ak eb ev lut sel ma ra su drib. The eagle explodes into harmless small birds. But this fight has weakened Zatanna. She passes out, thus ending part two of our story. Pretty action-filled, I gotta say. <laughs> it's nice hearing somebody else try those spells. <laughs> it ain't easy. Supergirl flies up the side of the mountain where she discovers an unconscious Zatanna lying on the frigid plateau near the peak. Quickly, the Girl of Steel wraps her indestructible cape around the magician and uses her heat vision to warm it until Zatanna wakes up. Supergirl asks what Zatanna is doing way up on this mountain, and each woman is stunned to learn the other is here to rescue a man. That surprise increases exponentially when Zatanna sees the bracelet with Tony's name on Supergirl's wrist. Just then, a sudden avalanche brings a wall of snow down on the ladies. But it's not normal snow. It's actually the hands of a living snow monster who grabs each of the women in its snowy hands. Supergirl uses super speed karate chops to free herself, while Zatanna slips through his icy grip by casting the spell Anataz Knirsrof Epaxi. Rather than cooperate with each other and coordinate attacks, each woman attempts to take out the snow monster by herself. Supergirl blows a sudden gush of super breath at the monster, while Zatanna casts mystic fireballs to melt it. At the same time, however, the monster becomes insubstantial. Supergirl's super breath knocks Zatanna on her butt, and the magician's fireballs pepper the girl of steel. Having embarrassed themselves enough, the ladies opt for teamwork instead. Sort of. Supergirl uses her heat vision to melt the snow monster's legs, and Zatanna casts a spell that turns his snow crystal form into cloud vapor. I guess that's a kind of teamwork. After the snow monster is gone, they finally spot Tony shambling toward them. He still looks handsome as hell with his months-old disheveled beard. He tells them the Orgox is real, that it's been holding him prisoner for months because Tony tried to turn the people of the village below against it. Just then, the Orgox comes into view. Zatanna steps up to cast a spell against the demon, but Supergirl stops her. Tony was acting terrified, but Supergirl's super hearing revealed that his heartbeat wasn't accelerated at all. She reasoned that Tony was actually the Orgox in disguise, and the demon Zatanna was about to attack was the real Tony. As Supergirl and Zatanna prepare to capture the real Orgox, the sore loser uses his magic staff to sacrifice himself by destroying the entire mountain. It caves in and crumbles, causing catastrophic destruction felt over several countries. Amidst the chaos of the collapsing mountain, Supergirl flies Tony and Zatanna away to safety, while Zatanna uses her magic to clear their path of falling rocks and debris. And as the trio zoom across the Atlantic Ocean, the jealous rivalry between maids of might and magic comes to an anticlimactic finish when Tony casually mentions that his fiancée back home will be glad to hear he's safe. Yep, Tony is engaged, and the superwomen feel like idiots for fighting over him. The End
So, Ange, what did you think? Oh, boy. <laughs> I always think it's tough, first of all, when characters like this Tony Martin, like, we've never heard of him before, and all of a sudden we just, like, all of a sudden, you know, Linda Danvers is wearing a bracelet and has pined about him for months, right? So it's it's always hard when those things happen. Of course, he seemed to kind of date both of them while he was engaged, because he certainly wasn't engaged, you know, while he was on the mountain. So yeah, um, he's kind of like a big creep. Um, which is why, you know, uh, you know, Supergirl ends this whole story by saying, I'll never understand men, which is something that she kind of says throughout this series. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's hard for me to sort of, you know, this, these stories, so much happens so quickly in these, in these books. So like, was the Orgox trying to stop them? I didn't want them to get Tony. Why didn't he just kill Tony? Why the, you know, elaborate ruse at the end to have them kill Tony. And then, of course, he destroys the mountain, which I guess means that that little village of huts that Supergirl saved earlier, they're all dead. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, but I definitely picked be... up on that. When, when it says yeah. that, like, the destruction of this mountain in the Himalayas was felt over several countries, I'm like, okay, it's a good thing they saved Tony, but probably hundreds of people died. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I saved your village 10 pages ago, but I guess, you know, you, I had to sacrifice you so that this guy <laughs> could live who's kind of a jerk. So, yeah. you know, you just got to roll with those things, I guess. Yeah, I kind of got to the same point. I was like, he just sort of casually, like, and it's one of those things where it's like, did he say that just because, like, he didn't want to commit to them? He didn't really want to date them? He was just playing with them before, so he kind of mentions, oh yeah, I'm engaged, and at that point, if I was Supergirl or Zatanna, I probably would have just left him back there. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you're engaged. Oh, you were dating each of us while you were engaged with a third person. Maybe we won't save your ass after all. Find your way back. Yeah, really. <laughs> uh, it, it is a story of the time, so you've got the girls sort of acting out of you know their their love for a man, but they are acting heroically and selflessly, and I like that. They are there to not just save, you know, they're, they're not just pining for their boyfriend. They are there to save a life, and they do act valiantly throughout most of the time, except when they're kind of not working together because of their jealousy. Um, yeah, and I would say that each of these individual threats, right, it's like, you know, super powerful Cro-Magnon people and an eagle made out of ice and a huge snowman that's like literally made out of snow and so <laughs> has some magical properties. Those are all pretty cool ideas that are sort of seen and defeated within like six panels of each other. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I you know, I liked that things were sort of ramping up. Yeah. Um, there were two sort of bigger picture things about the characters that I, I kind of thought of after I read this. Um, the first one is about Supergirl. I've always kind of defaulted to her classic original look where she's much more youthful. She's got the blue skirt and everything like that when she first appeared. But after reading some of these stories, like, I, I gotta say, I think this is now my favorite look for Supergirl is the hot pants look um, with sort of like the V-cut neckline. She's a little bit older, a little bit more mature. A little bit more sexualized, but, you know, we're not getting into the Michael Turner like era of her, you know, it, we're not going down that road. Um, but I really like this version of Supergirl now. I think this is probably my favorite. Yeah, you know, I describe um, Saf's art here as sort of like a va-va-voom kind mm-hmm. of Supergirl, right? You know, she's uh, almost like a pinup girl in uh, sort of her figure. And, of course, this is a halter top with a plunging neckline and hot pants, uh, you know, and ballet slippers or boots, depending upon what issue you're in. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it really sort of accentuates that, you know, this is a very gorgeous young uh, young woman, not a girl, right? Yeah. But it, But as you say, it's not... 
prurient in any way. Right. Um, it's, it's not. Just, she's not wearing you know, a belly shirt and a you know a postage stamp for a miniskirt. Yeah. Yeah, and there's no like obvious butt shots or mm-hmm. chest shots, right? It's just this is the costume that she's in, and I will say that you know. I clearly have a favorite version of her costume, which is a full blue shirt and a red skirt. But this particular costume has, over the last couple of years, kind of become more uh, interesting to me to the point that I've started to get a couple of um, commissions done with that. Hmm. One of them done by Terry Dotson, which is just, like, unbelievably beautiful. I can imagine. Uh, Yeah, like, speaking to the the va-va-va-boom effect, page 11... Uh, it's panel three. It's when she's fighting the the Cro-Magnon men. Um, that shot with her kind of leaping in front of them. Her chest is out, so her kind of bust is pointing forward. We get a little bit of cleavage and just sort of like the the full side profile view of her curves and her backside and everything. It's I look at that as like yeah yeah he it's it's a sexy yeah it's a it's a nice look. So it, yeah, that whole sequence, even as she's sort of like uh, the last panel of the next page, as she's flying up, it's really just her from the belt up is mm-hmm. really just a, a beautiful shot of her. Yeah. The other sort of big picture thing that I thought after reading this is I love this couple, Supergirl and Zatanna, as a pair. I just I like the idea of them. I like the visual contrast. I think these two together would be so much more interesting than Supergirl and Batgirl, Supergirl and po- or Power Girl and Huntress, those type of things. Like, I always like, you know, like combinations where characters really are different. Their specialties, what separates them, it kind of like makes them like foils for each other. Superman and Batman is kind of the classic one. But, you know, I always said like Black Canary and Green Arrow as a couple aren't really as interesting to me because they're almost too similar to of a type. I kind of like those, those golden age or I guess silver age issues when black Canary was with Starman because they're so different visually. They're so different in how they approach crime and the, the way they fight and everything. Supergirl and Zatanna, two very different looks, different color schemes of a sort. Like if you just look at the cover, but they're both young. Like one's got superpowers, one's got magic. Those play off of each other. There could be weaknesses to each other. If I was going to look for like a couple, like a partnership, I think these two in a book together would be really, really interesting. Yeah, I have to agree with you. You know, this was truly back in the day when it was like it's kryptonite or magic, right? Mm-hmm. And so to put them together does have that sort of feeling of like, oh, this is sort of you know two ends of the spectrum of what we're dealing with. Mm-hmm. And I also think that. You know, I think the Teen Titans are teens, and I think that the heroes are probably in their late 20s. And in my mind, I always kind of put this era of Supergirl, and I always put Zatanna, in kind of that, like, more like 22 to 24. So Mm -hmm. not the seasoned veterans, not young, young kids. And so there's a whole different dynamic, I think, about those. I'm I'm not a novice, but I'm not an expert either. I'm sort of in the middle that I think putting these two together, you're exactly right, I think um, would be a real... Really, uh, engaging pair even for example you know the um the joe canonis zatanna black canary mm-hmm. uh, like that's an interesting team up but i feel like canary is i've been doing this for a long time kid right and mm-hmm. she's like oh i'm right so i think that putting these two together supergirl that is and zatanna would be uh, fascinating just in terms of like what is their outlook um and what it, where do they think they are in in the dcu as a whole mm-hmm. and there's also just there's something fun about both of them. Like they're just, I, I think part of it has to do with that youthfulness and and somewhat 
legacy and derivative characters, but they're just like there. There's kind of like a joy to them that is that you don't. They don't. They're not necessarily weighted down with the baggage of the other characters and everything like that. But it's yeah. It's, yeah, there's there's no grim right. in either of them, right? So it's not like, oh, the difference here is Superman and Batman and Sunny Outlook and Dark, right? This mm-hmm. is a different sort of um, interesting, you know, mixture that you're getting. More, I think, powers-based than anything else. Right, right. But, yeah, so uh, that's, I mean, it's... I don't like the fact that the plot basically just centers around them being hung up on the same guy who turns out to be a jackass, but... It's it's a fun story. I like seeing the two of them play off of each other. I like seeing them work together. And again, like the visual contrast. And, you know, ultimately it's fun that they, they save a life and a whole mountain is destroyed, killing countless wildlife and probably local villagers and, and people. But, uh, yeah, that's, you know, that's what, that's what you get. Yeah, I would have liked one more follow-up of this where, like, Zatanna is, like, you know, casting spells against Tony, like, give him a flat tire, and, you know, <laughs> his uh, his bank account is drained, you know, <laughs> for being such a jerk, so. <laughs> um, all right, well, that is going to be it for this one. And thank you very much for reviewing this issue with me. Thanks for being on the podcast again. Uh, you will be back again in the not-too-distant future, uh, so fans can look forward to that. But until then... Where else can people find you in the blogo slash podcastosphere? Uh, well, I run a Supergirl blog called Comic Box Commentary, and I also um, do Friday reviews for the Legion of Super Bloggers. And I'm most active on Twitter, where if you look deep enough, you'll find out that I'm a big fan of the Warlock of Yes, which probably explains an upcoming uh, trip to this <laughs> podcast. Very, very much so. Yeah, so... Uh, and if you ever do uh, delve into the uh, the podcast sphere for Supergirl, I'm sure that this network will have no problem producing and hosting it. <laughs> if only I had the time, Ryan. But right. it's uh, it's out there as a dream. I hear you. I hear you. All right. Well, thank you very much for being on the show again. And folks, that is all for Dr. Ange this episode. But if you come back after the short promo break, I've got one more Satana story for you. It also stars Green Arrow, so... You know, take that for good or bad. We'll be back in a minute. Attention, attention all personnel. New from the Fire and Water Podcast Network, it's MASHCAST. Hosted by MASH megafan Rob Kelly and a rotating cast of VIPs, MASHCAST analyzes episode by episode the greatest television series of all time, MASH. Find MASHCAST on fireandwaterpodcast.com. Jocularity, jocularity. I got drunk from a love band. I wish she'd get a seat, but she only cares when she's got the time. And I felt so much about a love band. I wish she'd let me be, but her destiny's got us intertwined. Girl, I ain't with it. I get jealous, but I'm too cool to admit it. When the fellas talk to my girl, I.
back for one more story that I was happy to reread for the first time since I reviewed it on my old Black Canary blog, Flowers and Fishnets, back in September 2014. Yes, this story features both the Princess of Prestidigitation and the Blonde Bombshell. Perfect for this podcast, don't you think? In the mid-1970s, Green Arrow had a semi-regular backup strip in Action Comics. Many of those adventures included Black Canary, either as the Archer's crime-fighting partner or just as frequently as his girlfriend Dinah. Action Comics 434 has an April 1974 cover date, but according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, it would have hit newsstands on January, roughly 44 years ago this month. The seven-page story, titled Zatanna's Double Identity, is written by Elliot S. Magan, with art by Dick Dillon and Frank McLaughlin. The story opens with Green Arrow recounting for the reader the latest hardship in his life. Oliver Queen and Dinah Lance were returning from the movies when they found Zatanna waiting in Ollie's public relations office. No sooner did they greet the saucy sorceress than she threw herself into Ollie's arms and started kissing him. Dinah is understandably hella pissed to see the lady magician locking lips with her boyfriend. But what enrages her all the more is how Zatanna acts like she is Oliver Queen's lover and Dinah a total stranger. Dinah storms off, leaving him to sort out this awkward situation. Being a master of martial arts, she hopes to maintain discipline over her mind and body by putting some distance between herself and the two people she really wants to murder. Ali assumes that Zatanna is the victim of some kind of magic spell that screwed with her memory and perceptions, but instead of concocting a practical way of solving that problem, he takes Zatanna with him to the public demonstration of a bank's new super security system. At the demonstration, Ali makes a not-too-subtle critique of the anti-communist witch hunts in Washington, D.C., before a pair of armed robbers bust in and try to rob the bank. These are supposed to be actors pretending to rob so the bank's security system can activate, but Ali recognizes them as legitimate criminals. He ducks behind a corner and changes into his Green Arrow costume. Then he and Zatanna spring into action. Except, as Green Arrow notices, Zatanna isn't fighting like a magic-wielding sorceress. She's fighting the way Black Canary would, using judo and martial arts. Green Arrow figures she somehow assumed Black Canary's identity and personality, so he quickly comes up with a scheme to put things right. He calls one of the two bank robbers Eben Flo, and then fakes being knocked unconscious. Instinctively defending the archer, Zatanna calls out the crook's name, Eb Flo, but it comes out like a spell, Eb Flo, having the effect of turning the criminal into a wolf. Once she has witnessed herself using this magic, Zatanna's old memories begin flooding back. After taking out the other robber, Zatanna says, Egnak Kab At Anam, and the wolf changes back to a man. With the bank robbery foiled and Zatanna back to herself, she tells Green Arrow what happened. She had been tracking a gang of gem smugglers and decided to fight them using judo. Knowing that Black Canary was the best judo expert in the world, Zatanna cast a spell on herself to give her Black Canary's powers. Only, she phrased the spell in such a way that she took on Black Canary's personality, too, including being in love with Oliver Queen. Zatanna was embarrassed, but not too embarrassed because she gives Green Arrow another kiss before leaving. Just as Ollie settles down, thinking that situation is fully resolved, 
his girlfriend Dinah comes back, literally kicking the door in. Dressed as Black Canary, Dinah is still hella pissed. Her martial arts training hasn't calmed her down. She's been seething for an hour, and she's ready to kill Zatanna. Luckily, Green Arrow is able to explain the whole story before Dinah kills one half of this podcast. It's probably a good thing Ali didn't mention the second kiss Zatanna planted on him. Okay, the art in this story is pretty fantastic. I've become a much, much bigger fan of Dick Dillon since I first read the story years ago. He drew the Justice League of America for so many years that his characters are pretty much a model sheet for the Bronze Age superheroes. His version of Zatanna looks tough and sexy, less youthful than some other artists, but I don't mind that. His Black Canary... I mean, duh... Speaking of Dinah, even though she's shunted off to the side for most of the story and only appears in costume after the action is over, she does have an unexpectedly large role in the story. And it's flattering to the character to see how highly Black Canary's martial arts skills are thought of by both Zatanna and Green Arrow. As I said before, Black Canary didn't always get a lot to do in the Green Arrow stories from Action Comics, so it's a nice validation that her fighting prowess is something even a magic-powered superhero would try to emulate. As for Zatanna, well, she looks good in this story, but it's difficult to compliment more than that since she's intentionally out of character for most of the game. She's not acting like Zatanna, she's acting like Black Canary. If anything, I have one major complaint about Zatanna in the story. After getting her memory and personality back, Girl, don't kiss Green Arrow again! You know he's dating Black Canary, a woman who could and would kick your ass! And Ollie's a jackass! How many times do I have to say that? Don't make out with him! But oh well. That's that. That's Zatanna's last story from this era. It wasn't her last appearance, though. She did show up in two pages of Justice League of America issue 114, published a few months later in 1974. This was at the time when Justice League was a 100-page comic with a 60-cent price tag. For that ungodly sum, you got a brand new Justice League adventure plus two reprints. Zatanna appears on the first page of the new story, The Return of Anachronus. I am not going to recap the story, I am only going to say that it begins with the League holding a telethon, what Superman calls a superthon. In the background of panel 2, as Superman talks to the reader slash audience, we see the other heroes manning the telephones. This includes Batman, Elongated Man, Kid Flash for some reason, and yes, Zatanna too. That's it. That is the entirety of her inclusion in this story. What is the telethon for? Eh, doesn't matter. The Maid of Magic shows up one more time in this issue. Right between the two reprint tales are three sort of fun and games pages about the Justice League. There are trivia pages, riddles, kind of fun questions that make you think about the characters. On page 39, there's a feature on JLA Heroes of the Past. It basically spotlights five characters who were members of the Justice League at one point, but no longer at the time of this publication. Each character is given a picture and a word balloon explaining who they are and why they're not on the team now. The list includes Snapper Carr, the Martian Manhunter, Wonder Woman, Metamorpho the Element Man, who does mention that he never joined the League when they asked, but he's willing to help whenever they want. The fifth character is, of course, Zatanna, who says, I, Zatanna the Magician, got help from the JLA when I was seeking my lost father, Zatara. Later, I assisted them on a case, so I suppose I'm a sort of reserve member. 
The phrase reserve member is in bold text, possibly because this is the first time it was ever used to describe someone. I don't know. That might have been the writer reaching or trying to get someone in editorial to notice the fishnet wearing magic user. If such was the intent, it failed. According to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, which could be wrong, I suppose, but I've seen no evidence to suggest it, this was the last appearance of Zatanna for more than four years. After all her guest appearances throughout the early 1970s in Supergirl, Action Comics, Adventure Comics, World's Finest Comics, The Flash, and Justice League of America, DC just forgot about her for four years. She wouldn't be seen again until Justice League of America issue 161 in 1978, in which she took on a brand new costume and a whole new status quo. But that is a story for next episode. For now, let us bid farewell to the classic era where Zatanna the Magician, the Maid of Magic, the Princess of Prestidigitation, the Saucy Sorceress, wore a top hat, a tuxedo jacket, and a pair of sexy-ass fishnets. Let us pay tribute to this era with an obnoxiously long moment of silence. I want to thank Dr. Ange for being my guest on this episode. I want to thank all of you for tuning in and supporting the show. Until next time. Power Fishnets is a proud member of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Feedback for this show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Power of Fishnets Facebook page. You can also find me on Twitter at RyanDaily01, or you can send an email to rdailypodcast at gmail.com. Power of Fishnets is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed on the show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and believed covered under fair use. Since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening. From love, from a loving, I wish she'd care to see, but she only cares when she's so inclined. And I fret so much about her loving, I wish she'd let me be, but her destiny's got us so intertwined. Back in 2011, I decided to not let this play with my mind. But when the boys from out of town, they come back around, I feel like I'm meeting a crowd.